Today's scripture reading comes to us from Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels would not be counted, could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat at the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, 
The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just as a quick note, um, we've just read the first 24 verses of a longer passage that will extend through chapter 8. Um, so when we are considering this story, just know that I'll kind of continue on and I kind of like fill you in on the parts that we didn't have a chance to read. But uh, please now join with me in prayer. Father, in many ways we've already acknowledged, whether through prayer or through song, that on our own we come before you weak. Uh, we come before you undeserving, and yet you are a God who tells us to come. Uh, you are a God who promises kindness and grace, and you are a God who in our weakness uh, shows your strength. And so we pray for that now, that even in this humble act of us just listening, you would do powerful things in us, drawing us closer to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I believe that one of the ways that we most, in this life, fully experience God's kindness to us is through His work of teaching us to depend upon Him. One of the ways that God most clearly shows His love to His people in this life is teaching us to depend upon Him. Now, I'll say that is oftentimes when he is doing his kind work, it doesn't feel kind because the thing that stands in the way oftentimes of us learning to depend on God is our own desire to rely on ourselves and, and to be brought to the place that we need to can oftentimes be painful. It's not easy to be humbled. It's not easy to come to recognize our weakness, but these things are things that God in his love does so that we can learn to turn to him in prayer. And, it, and it's loving because we need this. You and I were never meant to try to kind of face everything just on our own, saying, I'll power through it, I'll do it, it's all in my own strength. We know deep down that that is a frightening proposition. We need to experience what we were made for, and that is to be one who is connected to God, trusting in Him, worshiping Him. That is what we need, and so God knows that. And in His love, through all sorts of different things, sometimes suffering, sometimes our failure, he brings us to the place where we learn to depend upon him. I think it's important for us 
to recognize that because that begins to give us insight as we're going through life where we can start seeing God at work in ways that we didn't before. And I bring that up this morning because I think that is what lies near the very heart of our passage. If we are looking rightly, this is the, uh, the story, if you're familiar at all with Judges, the story of Gideon, but I would suggest that it's less about Gideon and more about God in his kindness teaching his people how to depend upon him. So we, we start, and it's become almost kind of a, a recurring refrain every week. We start in the same place. It says, Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God, recognizing that, chooses to love his people, but he chooses to love them in what seems like a very severe way, because he brings them low. If you have your uh, bulletins open, you'll see at the very beginning it says, the people of Israel that was evil, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And this is a big deal, as we see in the verses that follow, because we're told that when Midian comes, they come innumerably. It says they come with their camels like locusts. I don't know if you've ever seen planet Earth. There's um, this scene that I still remember where it talks about the way that locusts can, uh, in certain regions go, and you have like swarms will come together and be like super swarms, where David McCullough and his, and, you know, like his distinctive voice speaks about how billions of locusts come within the square miles. And, and when you see the scene, like, it, it no longer looks like bugs. It just looks like snow in the middle of summer in Africa. It's just, there's just so many that you cannot count. And wherever they go, wherever there was green before, the moment they leave, there is nothing left. And we're told that's what Midian was like. When Midian, Midian would invade Israel, and they would just take, whenever the crops were ready, they would take all the crops, they would take all the animals, and they would leave, and Israel would look, and there was no food left. And that is a big deal. That's, I don't know how my kids are going to eat a big deal. So it says that Israel ends up kind of going hiding to caves and that kind of thing, just trying to hold on. And verse 6 summarizes how they are experiencing it. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Do you know what that's like to be brought low? To experience a kind of overwhelmedness at life where you realize that the things that you face are just too much for you and you can't fix it. And so Israel, being brought low, does what they have done again and again. They cry out to the Lord. But this time, something is different. Normally, in the past, when they cry out to the Lord, we see God sending a Savior. But here, He sends someone different. He sends a prophet. And the prophet does not say encouraging words. Because, you see, God's people need to be brought even further low. Notice, the prophet says to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all that oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. The prophet has a simple message. Israel, everything you're experiencing right now is your fault. Do you know what that's like to not only be brought low, but to be brought low because of your own failure and you realize it? That is where Israel is. That is what God has led Israel to experience. But we need to understand that what God is doing here is not cruel. 
what, what God is doing is, is the work of a loving physician who realizes that the only way to heal the patient is to kill the cancer. And we see that this is fueled by a kindness, by a love for his people, by what happens next. Because right after we see this prophet declaring, you have done wrong, it is your fault, the very next thing that God does is he raises up a savior by the name of Gideon. Except I'll have to say from the very beginning, if you are paying attention, this Gideon figure is not the hero that we would have chosen if we were in charge. So you have this man, Gideon, who is, um, well, let's just say it doesn't seem very heroic what he's doing. He, he is threshing wheat in a wine vat, which might not seem strange to you, but the key thing about threshing is you need wind. Like the threshing is you're meant to break the, the light, the, separate the light chaff from the heavy wheat, and, and you don't have wind in a wine vat where the walls are all around to hide you. He, he's doing this not because it makes any sense, but because he's afraid. He's hiding from the Midianites. And so you can just imagine when this angel, who probably appeared like a man, just kind of like walks in to Gideon's surprise, and, and he, he says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now imagine Gideon at this time is kind of like, just kind of blowing on the chaff as he's trying to, and then all of a sudden, O mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And, and if we're understanding what's going on, we're like, are we sure the angel has the right guy here? And, and so Gideon also is confused, but Gideon actually is stuck on the first sentence. The Lord is with you. And what does he say? He says, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all those wonderful deeds that our fathers told us about, talking about Egypt and all of that kind of thing? The Lord has turned, uh, says, now the Lord has forsaken us. So, so not only do we have someone who is clearly a bit fearful, we have someone who has lost faith. He says, I've, I've given up on God. What do you mean the Lord is with me? There is no way the Lord is with me. But the angel of the Lord responds and, and basically ignores his response. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And finally Gideon is starting to kind of focus on this mighty man of valor. Go in this might of of yours. And, and to him, it is, it's absurd. I mean, we already know he's not a man of valor. He's a man who's hiding while he's threshing. He's a man who's given up on his faith in God. And now, more than that, he himself says, I'm, I'm not mighty. I am part of a really small clan, and I'm one of the weakest people in the clan. That's not me. And it's actually worse than that when we understand something else about Gideon. This clan that he's a part of, this family that he's a part of, they're idolatrous. In fact, in his home, like his backyard, is a shrine to Baal and Asherah. So the Savior that God is raising up is a cowardly, faithless idolater. And so you can understand exactly why he responds, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? But the angel, once again, ignores or just is completely unfazed by it. What does he say? His answer is simple. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you. It's not that Gideon's self-assessment was wrong. 
It's absolutely the case that Gideon, as he looks at himself, and he sees none of what God has said about him. He is not mighty. He's not a man of valor. He is certainly not capable of saving Israel if he relies upon himself. But God is with him. And see, if God is with someone, and if that someone depends upon God, then the entire equation changes. And so that's why God wants to make sure that Gideon understands that. He does a miracle right after the angel touches his staff to the food that Gideon has brought. The food immediately disappears. The angel disappears. Sorry, the food immediately goes up in smoke. The angel disappears. Gideon, for the first time, is beginning to realize that he is actually having a divine encounter with God's messenger. And he is rightly terrified. And God says, peace be with you. In other words, do not be afraid, Gideon. I am with you. So Gideon has now been called to bring salvation to Israel. But, but it is not yet time for the battle. Because remember, God's salvation here of his people is not just about rescuing them from Midian. God is the one who put them in the hands of Midian to begin with. God's rescue here is to bring Gideon and the people of Israel into a place of learning dependence upon him. And so three things need to happen before it even gets to the battle. The first step is that Gideon's idols need to be removed. God will then next say that he's supposed to take his father's bull and tear down the altars and the, and, the, and the idols that are in his father's shrine and instead put an altar to the Lord instead, which, which makes sense, right? If, if, if the only way these people will come to recognize that it's God who rescues them is if it's clear that all of their other false hopes are empty. So Gideon obeys, except... <laughs> Gideon decides that he's going to do it in the darkest time of night so that nobody else can see that he's doing this. Which, if, if this is supposed to be the heroic, mighty man of valor, this does not bode well that he, he's afraid of his dad and, and his neighbor Joe, so he's going to do it in the middle of the night. So, but even still, he does this. He tears down the altars that are there. He puts an altar to the Lord. And surprisingly, his family and his clan accept that. They've changed their allegiances. Now Yahweh is the one they will be putting their hope in. Phase one is done. But step two, not only does this need to happen, but Gideon himself needs to learn to trust in the Lord. So we're told that once again, as it happens every year around harvest time, the Midianites start flooding into the borders of Israel, and they start getting ready to take all of these crops. And we're told that now Gideon has the spirit at work in him, and he's able to bring about this really large army, not as big as Midian, but substantial. And so it looks like we're getting ready for the battle, and then Gideon absolutely loses his nerve. He, he, he doesn't feel like he's up for it. And, and so he asks God for a sign, and I want you to listen carefully to the words he says to God, because it tells us something about where his heart is. He says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and if it's dry on the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, you heard my emphasis Gideon is not looking for a sign because he's not sure about what to do. He's not looking for a sign to confirm that God is the one who has spoken. Gideon knows that it's God, and he knows what God has said, but he doesn't know if he can trust the Lord. 
In other words, what he's asking for is blasphemous. He's demanding of God that God passes the test so that he can know that he can trust in God. It is surprising in some ways that a lightning bolt does not happen in this moment. Remember, Gideon was terrified just a moment ago, and now he's demanding that God passes his own personal test. But what's, what's utterly remarkable to me is that God doesn't punish Gideon. He doesn't abandon Gideon and saying, I'm going somewhere else. How dare you ask that of me, the creator of the universe? No, what does God do? He actually does what Gideon asks. The next morning, the fleece is wet, the ground is dry. And even that's not enough. Gideon's like, um, I'm still afraid. Could you do the opposite? So the next morning, God makes the fleece dry and the rest of the ground wet. Do you, do you see this, that, that God is so committed to bringing Gideon and his people to a place of dependence that he is willing to humble himself and do what he should never have been asked to do and subject himself to this test just to bring his people to where they need to be. We then get to step three. Step three, Gideon and God's people need to learn to depend on on nothing else. So now Gideon finally is ready to move forward. And he has this army, but God actually now stops him and says, wait, this is not right. There are too many soldiers here, which I'm sure Gideon's like, come again? No, there are too many soldiers. If you fight right now and you win, even though it will be surprising if you do, you will come to decide that it's because of you. So first, I want you to send anyone in the army who is really afraid home. And suddenly, two-thirds of the army leaves. But God looks and says, that is still way too many This needs to be absolutely clear. And so he kind of brings the army through a test about how they drink the water of the river. And only 300 drink it a certain way. And God's like, the 300, that's the right amount. This massive army that Gideon has assembled is now 300 people. Just think about that. You could easily fit 300 people in this building. Just even these three sections would fit them all. And that somehow is supposed to be enough to overcome the Midianite army that is like the locusts? It's ridiculous. Which, of course, is the point. God wants it to be absolutely clear that when this happens, this happens only because of God. So we get finally to the the moment. Gideon and his 300 people get like on the top of the mountain and they look down and and they see the army and again it is like locusts way too many camels or people to count and and you can only imagine as the sun is setting and Gideon is just just going through what's going to happen how he must be just utterly terrified and once again we see God's patience and kindness God knows what Gideon needs to be able to do what God has called him to and so So God actually tells Gideon, Gideon, I'm going to give you one more sign to reassure you. I want you to go down into the camp and listen. And so Gideon goes down and stays in the shadows. And there are soldiers huddled around the fire. And he overhears one soldier saying to another, another saying, I had this really weird dream last night. So in this dream, there was this loaf of bread. And it just kind of tumbled down a hill. And it absolutely flattens an entire tent. And for some reason, it is creeping me out. And the other soldier looks at him very seriously and says, that is a sign that the Midian army has been given into the hand of Gideon by God. 
And this is really it in a nutshell. These 300 people, these 300 soldiers and, and cowardly Gideon, they are about as frightening as a loaf of bread. Like, I have never heard of anyone, and I've heard a lot of stories, being attacked successfully by a loaf of bread. And that, that is these people. And yet, somehow, this loaf of bread is going to flatten an army. And in that moment, Gideon finally gets it. Somehow, hearing this news proclaimed by a Midianite through a dream is the thing that leads Gideon to the place of realizing God is with him. It says after he hears this dream, he worships. He is brought to the right posture of dependence upon God and recognizing God is with him. And in that moment, he becomes a mighty man of valor. He returns to the group of 300. He proclaims this kind of gospel to him. The Lord has given the Midianites into our hand. And, and he gives them like the strange, this strange strategy. He's going to divide an already small group of people into three even smaller groups. And here are the weapons that he gives them. In one hand, they are to have a ram's horn. In the other hand, they are to have a clay jar. A worthless clay jar whose only real value is the fact that it carries inside of it the light of a torch. And there's something I think even about the very tactic that Gideon is using that is meant to be representative of what actually is taking place. These 300 people are not just a loaf of bread. You could say they're just like a clay jar. There is nothing about them except for the fact of what they carry. Within them is the glory of God that is hidden. And at just the right moment, as Gideon gives the signal, the glory of God shines forth. 300 people break the jars, hold up the torch, blow the ram's horn, and, and, and shout their battle cry with a God-given confidence. They just stand their ground, and as they stand with that strength and valor and courage through God, their enemy utterly crumbles. The Midianites get out of the tents, they're beleaguered, they're confused, and they just grab a sword and they start attacking and they don't even realize they're attacking each other. And there's this whole battle while the 300 people are just watching. And at a certain point, the, the, it seems like maybe over hours, who knows, they just start running and fleeing. No one can, they, they, we're being defeated. I don't know how this is happening. And so Gideon gathers not just the 300, but eventually he gathers other people and they start chasing the Midianites. And the Midianites are completely defeated. Now, in case you're unfamiliar with, like, history of warfare and battle, this does not work. This shouldn't have worked. This is not just because Gideon was super smart. What, what happened here was God. Was God taking something that absolutely had no capability in itself, taking a group of people who were frightened and who were weak and powerless, and in their very weakness, he showed his glory. Do you see, as, as we trace the story, what God has done by bringing his people through being brought low, by bringing them through even times of fear to courage that's undeserved, by rescuing them, how in every aspect what he is doing is teaching his people 
that he is their God and that he can be depended upon. Now, the tragedy of this story is um, it doesn't end here. Gideon forgets. He, he ends up increasingly thinking that he is the mighty man of valor that God told him, but not through God, just on his own. He becomes increasingly kind of arrogant in different ways. And, and Israel, in the same way, if you follow the story of Israel, they forget. They forget God's salvation. And once again, they turn away in kind of self-reliance, not dependence upon God. And what Judges is meant to show us, one of the things is that it's going to take something more. That even though God has done something utterly unmistakable, there is no other way to account for it. The experience of God showing that is not enough. Something greater needs to happen for God's people to be broken from their addiction to self-reliance and to be brought to a place of dependence. And it's only many centuries later that we will come to see just how willing God is to humble himself to rescue his people. Because in the end, there is only one antidote, one way of ending the self-reliance that is so integral to who we are, and that is through death. And so Christ, when he goes to the cross, he goes to the cross on our behalf so that as he dies, in a very real sense, any of us who trust in Christ can die with him. If you have trusted in Jesus, the death of Jesus is now a part of you. And you now, in a way that was not true before, are beginning to have the capacity to be free from relying upon yourself. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, now it is also true that the resurrection of Christ is also a part of you. So that the Spirit is now work in you teaching your heart to say, yes, God, you are my Father, teaching your heart to trust and learn to depend upon Him, bringing you to a place of worship towards God where you can experience the peace and the joy and the strength you are always intended to experience. Because God is with you. And, and here's, here's what that means. If God is with you, then God says to you the very same thing he said to Gideon. The Lord is with you, mighty man, mighty woman of valor. That is you, if you are a Christian. That might sound ridiculous, but I'm basically just quoting Scripture. What does Romans tell us? That you are more than conquerors. Why? Because God is is with you. That even as weak as you might feel, God in his glory is able to do glorious things in and through you. And if that sounds utterly ridiculous to you, it is only because you don't understand how this works. It is only because you're looking at the wrong place and you look at yourself like, who am I? I don't see that. That's right. It's not in you. It is in God. It is precisely when you are weak that God shows his strength in and through you. I believe that in the New Testament, when Paul is writing about these things, he actually has Gideon in mind when he writes this. He says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but we have this treasure, this light in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And he goes on to say how this works. This is what it is to be a mighty person of valor. It is, on one hand, to experience the death of Christ in our lives and to be brought low. It's to experience persecution and suffering. It's to experience confusion. It's to experience what feels like weakness and failure. And yet, in those very moments where we're experiencing that, the resurrection life of Jesus shines through. So, so while we are being brought low, the Spirit is at work refining us and making us more beautiful. While we're experiencing confusion and uncertainty in times of doubt, the Spirit is actually at work giving us a persevering faith that is stronger than it was before. And when we are experiencing weakness and incapacity, God precisely in those moments often works through us to draw people to Jesus to do remarkable things. Because when we are weak, that is when God shows his strength. Because God is with us. That is the hope for the Christian. And that is a hope that you and I can take hold of even right now as we turn to God and acknowledge our need, we are taking hold of that reality. As we turn to God and acknowledge that we are sinful and that Jesus has died for us, we are taking hold of that reality. And I invite you to even take a moment right now to respond in that way, to in some ways continue to put to death this self-reliance that is so much a part of us that we might learn to depend on God in the way that we were meant to. Would you join with me in a couple minutes of just silent prayer and confession, and I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.